When we launched the Reboot Podcast five years ago, we had no idea what it might become. But what we did know was that it was really important to bring forward some of the conversations that we were having with clients so that we all could learn together. And even more importantly, perhaps, we could all see that we weren't alone in our work to grow as human beings. We weren't alone in our struggles. And for me personally, it was important for me to know that perhaps the next Dan could get the type of support he would need through the podcast. We feel really proud of where we've come from and really grateful for all of you and your support. And we're not changing the podcast in any way. That will continue to run. But we are exploring new opportunities and new shows. And we would love your input on where we might go next. We'd be really grateful if you just took a few minutes of your time to fill out a survey. Tell us more about what's working for you in the current show, what you'd like to hear more of, and a few other questions to help shape the future of the Reboot Podcast. Now you can find this survey at reboot.io slash survey. It's reboot.io slash survey. You just said something really, really meaningful there. Mm. You said, we're not a digital business, we're a human business. And Jules, you know, yes, this is our third time talking for the podcast, but that's what always comes through. Mm. You know, what you just said wasn't necessarily a business strategy, but it was a vision. And um, I'll make the assertion that that comes through both in the book, but even more in the grommet, because you're creating that platform for that community, for the bodies of the world to connect with someone else and say, there's something here that's powerful. And this part of our entrepreneurial community kind of doesn't get covers in, you know, TechCrunch and Business Insider and this conference and that conference. They don't get $100 million of funding to put scooters in the sidewalk, right? But they make a difference. Yeah. You know, and, and the vast majority of businesses in the United States are these small businesses. Yes. And, and, you know, it might be a dry cleaner. It might be a pet shop. It might be a local, you know, retailer of some sort. But, but, but we don't chronicle those folks. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. I started my first real business when I was 21 on the heels of a summer abroad trip heading into my junior year of college. And I look back on that time and I laugh and I cringe at what Dan the Entrepreneur did and how he did it. But I also really appreciate his creativity and his playfulness and resourcefulness. And I truly marvel at what that fledgling little business meant for me then and means for my life today. Entrepreneurship is so much more than making or losing money. In fact, money is really a small part in it. It can be about ego or meaning or worth or freedom or safety. And, and those were all true for me then and to some degree still are true. But it's also about creation, connection, personal growth. It's about unlocking and connecting with humanity. When I evaluate the ROI on my time and money invested in that poorly named company, NVR Electronics, I don't see a failed return or a poor return. I don't just see a business that was ultimately shuttered a few years later when it was squeezed out by larger competitors. I see so much more. I see the value it provided to me and my community. 
I see the ways in which it brought me closer to my wife, helped me find new friends. And I can see the limitations of just seeing success in entrepreneurship through only a financial return. I feel to truly capture the value of unleashing my creativity or engaging in something that revealed many areas in which I was personally stuck in my life, or to see the power of the collaborative and supportive spirit that arose during the creation and pulled me into a community that I still find roots in today, I need something far more complex than a simple ROI. The seeds of the man I am today, they were planted in that startup. I can't even begin to calculate the ROI on that. Our podcast guest today is someone who knows and sees the exponential ROI and world-changing impact in supporting people in taking their entrepreneurial and creative seats. Jules Pierre joins a small group of guests who are on our podcast for the third time, and she's talking with Jerry about her new book, How We Make Stuff Now, Turn Ideas into Products that Build Successful Businesses. And in this conversation, she shares the stories of the truly life-changing effects of entrepreneurship. Enjoy. Hi, this is Jerry Colonna. Thanks for listening to the Reboot Podcast. Check out my book, Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. I hope it really moves you. Hey there, Jules. Thanks for coming on the show. Before we get started, why don't you just take a moment and introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Jules Pieri, co-founder, CEO of The Gromit, and we launch innovative products from small businesses. And you're a returnee to the Reboot podcast. Have you ever had somebody come three times? <laughs> Am I the first? Um, Did I get the hat trick award? Parker Palmer did three times. He, right. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but you're here to talk in part about your new book, How We Make Stuff Now. Correct. So first of all, congratulations on that. It, uh, it is a maker opportunity, but it's also kind of maker's Bible. Um, yeah, that's a good way this. to put it. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about, you know, about the book, but more important um, to, for this conversation, how do you define a maker? Well, in the U.S., 135 million people call themselves makers, um, but that would be a very broad lens on with that word. It would mean people who are hobbyists from hobbyists to people who are pursuing creating a product, uh, a business around a product. And uh, frankly, the folks that we deal with are only at that spectrum end of the spectrum. It may be a side hustle or their full-time endeavor, but they are intending to create a business around a product. So those are the makers I'm addressing in the book. Mm. And, and, you know, the way I understood the book, and I really enjoyed reading the book, in part because I would not define myself as a maker. Mm. And it sort of gave me insight into that uh, group of entrepreneurs whom I have come to appreciate and uh, work with. But, but it really sort of gave me some deep awareness of just the sort of step-by-step, how do we do this? How do we go? from, hey, I have an idea, to actually, how do, I, how do I bring this into fruition and make this a part of uh, the world? Yes. Well, it's complex. These are, um, I mean, these, are, these businesses are an MBA, you know, like it's, a, it's an entire, the full range of business kind of disciplines come to life in these businesses. And 
frankly, a lot of people start because of their love for the product or the problem they're solving. And that's, that's perfectly natural. Um, but because these are products that have to compete with products from big guys mm. pretty quickly, the, the, the range of business activities has to step up to the quality of the product. Like you, you can't get away with not shipping quickly or having bad packaging mm. or not protecting your intellectual property. So, so the lessons um, sort of hit hard very quickly with these businesses. You, you can't fake it, fake a lot of this. And so, you know, I, I think you tell the story of, uh, and I forget the name of the product, but it's the egg shaker where right. you... It's called Neg. I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Tell, me, tell, tell me about Neg and, and equally important, tell us about the maker behind Neg. So Bonnie Tyler is in Connecticut and she, she was already an entrepreneur before she created the Neg, which is a, a, a magical, simple device to peel hard boiled eggs and started with, um, she's a web designer and she wanted to bring deviled eggs to a party that tied up at work, did not have enough time to peel all the eggs, <laughs> had to buy a bag of potato chips on the way to the party, big fail. And she said, this is crazy. Commercial egg peelers don't have people peeling eggs. How do they do it? And she figured it out. It's a combination of friction and water and agitation. Miniaturize that into a little device. And she needed to prototype the egg. And so she signed up. This is one of the cool things in the maker movement. There are maker labs all over the place, including in Bonnie's local library. She signed up for a 3D printing class. And she went for prototyping. Now, Bonnie walks in, and Bonnie is 76 years old. Yes. And she sits down to wait for the uh, instructor, and he walks in, and he's 11 years old. <laughs> right. So that's my world. That's the maker world. Like, Bonnie can do it, and the 11-year-old can do it, and they're meeting across the generations to yeah. pursue something like this. Yeah. I mean, I love that's part of the reason why I love that story. And I wanted you to, to, to uh, recall Bonnie because um, one of the things that I read into it and, you know, from, from having been on the show before that we often talk about entrepreneurs and leadership and we talk about, but, and I think that part of what we do, part of the mistake that we make is that we have a still a relatively narrow definition of what does it mean to be an entrepreneur? And, you know, Bonnie's story, um, you know, of walking into the library and being advised, if you will, by an 11-year-old, that was her consultant, right, um, is part of the entrepreneurial movement. That maker movement is part of this sort of larger uh, stream here. And so I find that super fascinating. And um, what it led me to think about was... Um, perhaps the loneliness of folks mm -hmm. who are in that space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, starting with sort of the profile thing that you mentioned, I do find when I'm, I'm speaking with people about this space and I can show pictures, they're very inspired because I'm showing pictures of people who look like, you know, in our case, we're living in the U S they look like all of America. Right. They, they are everybody. They are plumbers, they're teachers, they're doctors, they're any age, ethnicity. And so they love that. This is fresh, right? Because that's not the face of entrepreneurship we see typically right. in the media. Um, 
So on one hand, it's a super happy sort of side of the story. And, and the reality is the average age to start a company is 45. This is just generically. And it's actually the most successful age. Like it collides, that, that age collides with success as well. So some of this is refreshing from an age story. Bonnie happens to be, you know, 76. So that was probably unexpected for people when I told, you know, your listener, she was a web designer. Right. But you asked about the loneliness and it is lonely because it's still a fairly atypical thing to do. Far more people aspire to do this and actually pull the trigger, right? right? It's pretty normal for one of these folks to, when they finally get a product to market, um, to have people say to them, oh, I thought of that, or I, you know, I, I had that problem, or I, whatever. They, they almost sort of claim authorship because they thought of the idea, and these makers look at them like, like Marcus, the Mark Zuckerberg character in, in the, the movie about Facebook. Like if you had invented Facebook, you would have invented Facebook. Right. It right. takes a lot to bring one of these products to market. And it's um, typically a massive learning curve because at least in our experience, only 10% of these folks have ever even touched the industry, mm -hmm. much less that they're in now. Like they're an ER nurse who's suddenly doing, you know, a kitchen gadget or, you know, a dentist who's creating an adhesive and, They've never done this. They don't even know who to talk to. They, they, they literally don't know anyone yet who can help them. Right. And, okay. and you know, and, and, and I, think, I think about, and, you know, in some ways we probably perpetuate a bit of this myth because um, we, 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 the vast majority, not all entrepreneurs, but the vast majority of the entrepreneurs that we, we work with on the show are really... Um, folks who do fit a particular profile. They're not the lonely inventor. They're not the singular person. They're not the ER nurse who has an idea for something that is outside their realm of expertise or the expected realm of expertise, only to come up with not just the idea, the product idea, but the, but the persistence and the commitment to actually seeing it through and seeing through all the steps that you sort of so skillfully lay out in the book. Um, which, and, and you talk about the fact that they, they, they don't necessarily have places to go. And, you know, I, I want to bring your attention back to some things that you wrote about. Um, and I'm going to read from your book back to you. So we built a massive community of the very best kind people from all walks of life who are curious, smart, and looking to support entrepreneurs and in innovation. Over time, Daily Gromit became the Gromit, and today we're a powerful, unique market maker. One of the reasons of our resonance and growth is that our community embraces the age-old human drive to create and invent. Our supporters and customers experience the Gromit as a place to see fascinating passions and talents realized. Tell me, tell me more about that. Well, I think... Um I know that one of the founding principles of the Gromit was if only people knew about these companies, these people and their products, they would be interested. They would probably be engaged. If only they could hear the second layer of the story behind the product as well. Like what are the values of the company? How did this product get born? And so that was the bet when we started the Gromit and that proved to be a good bet. It was totally unprovable before we started. How could I say, where's, you know, how many people are in this category of curious and 
interested. Um, fast forward today, I would say in some ways, Kickstarter and Indiegogo have proven this more than we have because Kickstarter just had its 10th anniversary and there's been $4.3 billion of investment made in these projects. And those are far more risky than anything the Gromit launches. We are, you know, several steps beyond Kickstarter and de-risking something. Right, right. Um, but that, there was this pent up interest that I was betting on Kickstarter, bet on, and it's proven to be a great bet. When um, every day I read all the comments from our, we do a uh, net promoter score survey every day of our customers and the people who write the open-ended comments, I read everyone. And um, the thing I'm always looking for is kind of the why, like, why are you here? Mm. And um, the most consistent thing they say is, um, first of all, the products are unique and innovative. And the second most likely thing they're going to say is something about the person behind the product. Like right. I like supporting small businesses or I like companies that produce in the USA or I, like they are connected to the why of these businesses. And that was the part that took a while to form, frankly. It was easy to sort of hook people with a cool product, but to get people to understand uh, the people behind the products and, and articulate that, that that's been very gratifying to me. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think of my own purchases over time and, and I think over the, and I'm glad you brought in Kickstarter and Indiegogo. Um, I think over time, one of, over the last 10 years, one of the things that I've owned, I've experienced is actually, it feels a deep connection with the person who designed the product or the person who went on the edge. I mean, recently I bought a pair of jeans from a, uh, a company uh, in the UK that had revitalized jeans making in this formerly um, in this, in this small town. And, you know, Megan Markle and I wear the same jeans. Well, I actually haven't been able to wear them, but the, 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 the point was I was so moved by the story. Yeah. Right. Um, that I felt a deep resonance and connection. And I think that that's part of what you're talking about here is that there's the, that there's an opportunity for a very human connection to Bonnie and her yes. neg. Yes. Right? Yes. In you fact, know. Bonnie specifically, the day we launched her product and, and, you know, she isn't typical. We don't have a lot of entrepreneurs of her age range. We have some. And some of the comments were from people in her age cohort saying, I can't tell you how meaningful this is to me. You're telling me I could do it too. Right. And, you know, that that's part of it that, um, well, statistically 75% of American high schoolers won't say they want to start their own business. And, you know, I sort of speculate that, you know, if I just sort of walk down the street here, at least one out of three people would have that, you know, that, that ambition. And you, it's hard to fuel the ambition unless you can see it, right? You're not necessarily going to do it today, this minute, but you want the hope. You want the promise that when you're ready to do it, there are, you know, role models, but also people who will care that you are doing it, that there'll be customers or, or peers who can help you. And yeah, I, you make that very real every single day. Well, and I think you make it real in the book too, because not only do you lay out the paths to, from, from, you know, from the idea to actually execution, distribution, retail sales, like all of the nuts and bolts of it. But it's interlaced with these beautiful little vignettes and stories. 3,000 of them, right? Like that was right. the goal. That was that was the like, why do I need, you know, why now? Why, why write this book? Well, first of all, 
like I haven't seen a book like this. I wouldn't have done it if it existed. I don't like copying or repeating anything. Right. And then I realized we're sitting on this experience space that we've had the privilege of participating and observing and helping. And it's almost like a public service or, a, you know, almost an imperative to like, let's get this out of all of our brains and put it in one place. Um, because the reality is these makers, if they're, when they succeed, it's usually because they figured out how to tap community. So it's not just the customer side. That's very important. You won't have a business unless you can tap people's hearts and minds and pocketbooks. But um, along the path, they have to get comfortable with and, and appreciate how much their peers can help them, the people who've been there before. And obviously the book kind of takes them to the head of the class and, and shortcuts a lot of that quickly. But um, I hope one of the things people take away when they read it is uh, LinkedIn is my friend, the phone is my friend, right? I can, these, these makers love to share their, say, you know, kind of battles of figuring out manufacturing. It's one of the things in particular they love to talk about. It's usually not a competitive asset because they usually contract their manufacturing anyway. And they, mm-hmm. you know, they, they've had to, like learn the hard way and they, they like to save somebody else those same steps. So they get super excited sharing that, like go here, don't go there. You know, this person can help you. Hmm. That's one of the pieces that I'm particularly fascinated with was that, that there's this concomitant built around the, the community of peers, not just the community with, with potential consumers and customers like myself, but really the sort of peers and this peer sharing, which as you know, from, from, from the work we do, we're huge fans of encouraging entrepreneurs of all types to connect with their peers, to really understand and share the journey. Um, in that process, what would you say might be um, some of the characteristics of the the personal characteristics, the, the 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 leadership characteristics of the folks that you've identified as uh, successful in this way? What do you I see? ask that because in March I did um, I forced myself to do a, a March Madness bracket of entrepreneurship, mm. like and I I just randomly came up with the thirty two starting points of. And, and I did it authentically. Like I really made myself pick, you know, mm-hmm. somebody else sort of put the bracket together. Like he kind of made sense of my 32. And um, in the end, the one that won, if, if you want to cut to the chase, was tenacity, was mm-hmm. the, the quality that I decided, you know, and this is generic to entrepreneurship, not specific to our makers, but it's true for our makers as well, that yes, you have to be able to make the sale. So salesmanship is important. You have to be super resourceful. You have to be able to communicate well and you have to have a vision, but you're getting knocked down and have to pick yourself up. So often do any of those things and Mm. you can be great at selling, but if you don't have the tenacity behind that, that, that gets you to be able to show up and do the sale, it is the most enduring, most central characteristic that matters with these companies. And maybe even more so with these companies because they aren't able to just show up at Techstars and, you know, get develop an instant community and, and you know, kind of um, get affirmed in the way that the, those kind of entrepreneurs can get social proof and affirmation that they're doing something that's not crazy. Mm-hmm. Folks, you, you identified it early. It's a little bit lonelier journey. So that tenacity might might even be more important in these cases. 
Well, and and typically these these folks, unless they go on Shark Tank or something, don't actually end up with funding. Yeah, that's super hard. That that yeah. um, that one's not solved yet. I would say the crowdfunding platforms have taken us part of the way, and it's it's incredibly different and meaningful that they exist. We started before them, so it was even harder when mm. we started. They basically get you to that first production run. It's like a loan, essentially, and it's a make or break differentiator now in, in, in these companies. It, it's really important. What's harder to get is the next level of funding though. Okay. Now I need to build a business and I need somebody to believe that this is going to have the exponential outcomes, which is harder to prove and harder to bet bank on for these companies. And, you know, um, uh, what also occurs to me and, and, you know, oftentimes because we do so much work with entrepreneurs who are struggling, we don't necessarily talk about some of the benefits of having outside investors. And one of those benefits could be, if they handle themselves right, having a set of consiglieres, yeah, counselors who can sort of um, uh, help support that tenacity. Yes. Um, does that resonate? Yeah, I see. Um, there's one guy in the book that I mentioned, Adam, who has a, a, a humble little product called Guardian Bells. It's a value hang. Um, traditionally, bikers like motorcyclists hang um, bells on their bikes as protection. And, and also, like, there's sort of a superstition that has to be a gift. You can't put your buy your own bell. Hmm. So he, uh, he noticed that was happening and created a business around it. But he goes to a coffee shop every morning to try to have basically his approximation of that. It's a bunch of people who have their own businesses who get Mm. together Mm. every morning. So, you know, that's, that's his way of doing it. Um, But like tonight, I'm going to speak with one of our makers. I don't know what he wants, but he said he wanted some advice and I, I'm really busy today. And I kind of wanted to say like, okay, let's talk next week. And then I thought, you know what? He probably, I don't know what he wants, but he probably doesn't have somebody else. If he's asking me, he doesn't have someone else. No, I'll take the call. We're going to talk at seven tonight. This must be important to him. Right, right, right. Well, and I appreciate you're doing that. I mean, I think it's it's you leaning into a role that you can play. Um, And and I imagine, you know, if you've if you've helped three thousand different makers launch, you don't have the time to talk to even ten percent of them, let alone you know maybe even one percent of them. But to make the time there, I think, is is super helpful. And I'm imagining that you can relate even from your own experience as a CEO. Oh, completely. Yes. And, um, you know, I wasn't the greatest at that myself because initially we had just angel investors who don't play necessarily that active a role. And you kind of don't want them to. I had 35 of them. I couldn't have handled 35 consigliers, you know, right. in my life. Right. But I still go back there. The ones who were more active and, you know, maybe a little more savvy. Um, I still go back to some of the things they told me that were more sort of the enduring as a CEO, mm. you need to mm. do something like I'm thinking of Chris Mirabile told me, Jules, you're the eyes and ears of the business. And so when you think, you know, going to this conference or having this meeting with someone, you're, you know, with a vague agenda that you're wasting time, you're probably not mm. like take the meeting, do the thing. Mm. And, because like every time I get on a plane, I resent it. Like I do not want to get on any plane ever. Right. You know, and then I just, I've learned to trust. And I always go back to what Chris told me, like, no, that's your job. 
It's your job to be open to the world and you need to be looking around corners and you can't do that from your office all the time. Right. So those kind of like really important, forceful or thoughtful lessons are hard, are hard to come by when you don't have investors. He was a, you know, an investor who played that role for me. Well, and I, you know, what just popped in my head is that perhaps you're stepping even into that role as you do this call with the maker tonight. Maybe, because, yeah. You know, because you, you, there may be a bit of information that comes in that can change the experience of the grommet. And yeah. And so, you know, maybe just helping them understand what's going on um, and, and, you know, can, can alter the way the grommet delivers its service and the way and it have, supports the thing is, we have 100 people, so this is happening all day, every day. Like, right. this is a company that answers the phone. People are on the phone here. Right. It happen right. in all businesses, right? Like, one right. of my sons took an internship at, you know, a hot company, software company. For that shall rename nameless. No. Well, he actually <laughs> really loved it. But he did say, it's so quiet. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, the headphones and, the, like, do the work. Yeah. It was hard to get to know people because you were afraid to sort of speak too loudly, you know, and this is the opposite. Like we're on the phone, we're talking, people are visiting. Right, right, right. Well, one one of the topics that I think that, uh, you know, I often return again and again to is just how we deal with uh, disappointment and failure. And, and, you know, when you couple the loneliness of the, of the solo product, entrepreneur the the bonnies of the world and you know i think i think it was bonnie's product that amazon copied um, yeah, i was just thinking of that actually that that's one of the most lonely things because it's not exactly failure but it could kill your business which is right. failure so in her case the thing people don't realize is that on Amazon, a quarter of the products are coming straight from Chinese factories as of 2015. And that made a quarter of the products um, tend to fall in the camp of copycat or worse counterfeiters. And that's what Bonnie encountered. Mm. Dozens of counterfeiters like Whack-A-Mole Life. And um, she, this is where I, she's a fiercely um, strong person. She's a, a nationally ranked golfer like you know she's had a lot of accomplishment in her life Um, this is the one where she this is area where she does feel lonely and vulnerable because she's kind of it's amazon against her or it's these nefarious players against her and sort of no one cares like there's there's no one answering the phone at amazon it's and customers buy these counterfeit neg products that literally use her photos the 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 trade dress, the, the name of the product, and they're inferior. So they fail and um, people are disappointed and think Neg is a bad product. She, interesting though, a twist since the book is she found a sympathetic lawyer. So this is on the go from lonely to mm-hmm. some, some version of triumph. She was having trouble getting legal counsel. Like the first lawyer she talked to said, well, every action is going to be say $2,500. And if you have one of these pop up a week, it's not tenable. She found somebody who just felt like sort of the righteous, you know, kind of anger over this because mm. she describes it. It's like standing outside your house and watching robbers go in and steal you blind. That's what it's like when these 
product shop. This lawyer felt the same, and they just won a class action suit against, um, I think she told me, 37 of these counterfeiters. Um, wow. So they may or may not see, you know, the actual proceeds, but the the victory was very meaningful to, to Bonnie. It's, you know, reduced that loneliness. And mm-hmm. like well, and, and, and the, her community got extended through the grommet into uh, uh, an attorney who was willing to work with her yeah. and stand with her. Yeah. And, and give her some resources. And we don't know the end of the story because the story is still unfolding, but, but um, all of a sudden the loneliness is prob- was probably lightened just a little bit, made more bearable just a little bit. Yeah. Another way we do that uh, is when trade shows, believe it or not, are still important in this, these industries. There's a national hardware show. There's shows for everything, toys, outdoor mm-hmm. gear, um, housewares. And we will, you know, kind of get a whole gang of makers together, say 30, 40, even up to 100. And, and, and we'll all go together with all of little tables. And, and typically they'd be all alone in a pretty crummy booth back by the hot hot dog stand. Like they're given very bad space because they're not a meaningful vendor. To, and we, we get prime space in a beautiful booth. We do all the work. They just have to show up. And it, trade shows are super hard, but these are different because they're standing next to 30 other people in the same boat, different products, not competitive necessarily at all. Chatting for three days, chatting to customers alone is super fun. You know, mm-hmm. that doesn't happen. And these our booth's always one of the most active. So they're not standing in that lonely booth. They're standing in the cool booth. Mm-hmm. That alone, like, it's so simple, right? And at first I resented it. because like, trade shows, are you kidding me? This is really, we have mm-hmm. to do this? This, this mm-hmm. is crazy. We're a digital business, but, but we're not. We're a human business. And that's one of the places where those connections are, are really energizing for our makers. Well, you know, I, I, I'm just, I'll just jump in here and, and talk about my friend Jules. You just said something really, really meaningful there. Mm. You said, we're not a digital business, we're a human business. Mm. And Jules, you know, yes, this is our third time talking uh, for the podcast, but that's what always comes through. Mm. You know, what you just said wasn't necessarily a business strategy, but it was a vision. And um, I'll make the the assertion that that comes through both in the book, but even more in the grommet, um, because you're creating that platform for that community, for the Bonnies of the world to connect with someone else and say, there's something here that's powerful, you know, and, and these, this part of our entrepreneurial community kind of doesn't get covers in you know TechCrunch and business insider and this conference and that conference they don't they don't get a hundred million dollars of funding to put scooters in the sidewalk right but they make a difference yeah you know and and the vast majority of businesses in the united states are these small businesses Yes. And, and, you know, it might be a dry cleaner. It might be a pet shop. It might be a local, you know, retailer of some sort. But, but, but we don't chronicle those folks. Right. And, and those folks um, are not just an economic uh, part of the economic engine of the United States. They're part of the fabric of what we're about. And so, 
Well, there's a piece in your book. I just wanted to return to that for a moment and towards the end. And you were talking about in the last parts of the book, you were talking about this notion of your personal capacity for tenacity. And I was really struck by this last piece of advice that you were sort of giving people, which is part and parcel of taking on the activities I listed is learning to conquer your own fear and even embrace it. When it's associated with a decision or life change, fear is usually an indicator that you're on a growth edge. No one is fearless, but the people who manage to pursue their ambitions learn to recognize the fear and walk into it rather than practice avoidance. I can tell you from experience, it does not feel good or comfortable. Far from it. In fact, the worst advice in the world is follow your gut. If it feels right, you will make the best decision. My observation is that the right decision often feels terrible, at least physically. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Well, I I think people do. um, The happiest people are people who have figured this out and can, Mm. you know, work through this and, I think one of the things that can be kind of a, a gift or a personal insight is what is your tell that you're there? Like, I do think it's often a physical one. Like in my case, it's my stomach. I, it sort of churns. It could even turn to the point of nauseousness, but mostly it's just an unsettled hmm. feeling. But some people, it, it would be insomnia or it, it could be overeating or it could be sweating or it could be heart rate. Like, I think I've found when I, when I share my own tell, people know what theirs is. Like, right. Right. And it's, it is a matter of saying to yourself, Oh, there you are, my friend, you know, I consider it your friend, even though you wish it weren't there, but this is, what are you here for today? There's something. And I'll, I'll, I'll pause sometimes when I'm feeling that. Cause sometimes I don't even know why I'm feeling it and right. I'll pause and say, okay, okay, stop. What is this? What is this? What's bothering me or what's interesting here? And if you can, do that it it's like you know you're then you could take your brain like that's your heart that's your like that's your gut your soul whatever sort of reacting right but then you can invite your brain in to start helping right Mm -hmm. okay now I know what I'm worried about or now I know what the challenge is here and in my case what I like to do is play out well what's the worst thing that could happen I'm upset I'm worried about this thing Mm -hmm. or I'm scared um, what's the worst thing that could happen? And I play it out like the worst possible. And that's where my brain's helping, right? Like, oh, okay. Well, I could live with that. It's never, you know, it's never death or destruction. Mm. Um, I can live with that. All right. All right. All right. All right. I can get through this, right? I can deal with this stomach and the next things after this stomach because my brain has worked with it, like mm. the, wrestled with it. Mm. Well, what what I I think you just did was define tenacity in a really beautiful experiential way. Mm. It's knowing the tell. It's identifying that fear. It's identifying the hesitation and then allowing your, your higher executive function of your brain come in and, and, and work with the fear and then be able to move forward anyway. Right. Right. Like here's an example. My brother, when I was about to start the business, it didn't make sense to anyone. It was too early for the times. And he said, like, what are you going to do if it fails? And like, I wasn't that, you know, I thought about that and I said, well, I'll get a job. Like, right. 
what's so bad about that, right? It's not like I'll be a pariah, unemployable, you know, standing outside with a sandwich board, you know, collecting dimes. Like, no, I'll I'll get a job. Okay, I can deal. It won't be fun. I'll be embarrassed. Right. But But I can deal. Yeah. Right. And I think that I think that's that's the subtitle, if you will, of the book, How We Make Stuff Now. I can deal. <laughs> I, can deal. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just changed the title. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> well, Jules, this this was just such it's so much fun to connect with you and to to reconnect with you and and I just want to celebrate the book. And I think I, I really do think that you did a service to folks and you did a mitzvah. Um, you know, a really good deed here. And, and I really appreciate your tenacity in making this happen. You know, as folks know, I've got a book coming out and it's not easy to put things together and, and to really put your thoughts together in the process. And so I want to recognize that and thank you for that. And thank you for coming again on the show. I was happy to. No, it's always a blast. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations and leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening.